Hi, I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian. And I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And this is Speaking of Race, a podcast where we explore present, past, and future debates and issues and thoughts about race in the light of science. So today we want to take a first stab at the big question, what does science say race is? We're planning on doing that today by looking at the changes in that concept just during our own lives. And we felt as a group that this was a good time to address this question because there's so much debate right now in the United States about what race is and what it should be. In future episodes, we'll look more at the main players in the concept of race historically and how researchers are discussing race today. I think it's good to start with you, Jim. You've definitely had more experience with this than Joe or I. Uh, what was the first time that you encountered race as a concept in the classroom? How was it defined? What have you seen? The first time I can actually recall having race addressed in the classroom was in a course on human variation I took at Berkeley from Vince Sarich in 1972. Sarich is on the same academic phylogenetic tree that I'm on. He is one of Ernest Albert Hooten's grandchildren, just like I am. And Hooten was the Harvard professor who trained most of the students who trained most of the students who trained most of the <laughs> students that populate physical anthropology, not just across the U.S., but across the world today. Sarich was teaching a version of race in 1972 that would have been very consistent with what Hooten had to say about race in 1926. That is that races were major subdivisions of the species that had physical and genetic differences. Sarich also taught a model of the origin of races that came from another Hooten student, Carlton Kuhn. Kuhn suggested that there was very substantial evolutionary separation between the races. 1972 was an interesting time period in the history of how anthropology deals with race because it was during the 1970s that there was a major changeover in the way that physical anthropology textbooks dealt with race. It went from being a true biological phenomenon to being a cultural construction to there not being any biological reality to race. That's a good start. Hooten seems like he was a really, really important figure then. Do you think, um, could you tell us more about who Hooten was and exactly what more of his influence was like? Ernest Albert Hooten had a PhD in classics from Wisconsin he had been awarded a Rhodes Scholarship, and he delayed taking it. When he finally did take it, he had become interested in archaeology, and he pursued the study of archaeology at Oxford. But during that process, he also began looking at skeletons, and that introduced him to the Scottish anatomist by the name of Sir Arthur Keith. Keith today is best known historically for his role in accepting the Piltdown fraud as a valid human fossil as a representation of the earliest origins of humans in the British Isles. Knowing what we know today about Keith's attitude on race, it makes perfect sense that he would argue for a British origin for humans uh, because he was extremely both racial and racist in his views, and he shared those views with Hooten, and Hooten really brought a lot of the racialist thinking into the discipline of physical anthropology in the U.S. Hooten was hired at Harvard to revive the discipline of anthropology in the early 1900s, and he trained many, many dozens of students that peopled the academic departments across the U.S. 
And many of those students carried on the ideas about race that Hooten had borrowed from Keith. For those who don't know what the Piltdown fraud is, can you just give us a one sentence? Piltdown was a fraudulent combination of a modern human skull with an orangutan jaw that was being passed off as a very early fossil humans from the British Isles. And the idea was to prove that humans had originated in the British Isles exactly. rather than in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Rather than anywhere else, yes. Or anywhere else, yeah. So, Jim, you told us a little bit about Sarich, um, but you only briefly mentioned Kuhn. That's somebody that I have heard come up a lot with reference to race and ideas of race in the United States. So can you tell us a bit more about Kuhn and what he was up to? Carlton Kuhn was born 100 years too late. <laughs> He was a 19th century scientist practicing in the 20th century. I mean, he would have fit in perfectly with the American School of Anthropology and the polygenists of the mid-19th century that were trying to support slavery with, with biological arguments about race. Kuhn truly had that kind of sensibility. He wrote about race in many different contexts, including perhaps his best-known works were published in the 1960s. 1962, he published a book about the origin of races, and uh, in that, he made the argument that our predecessor species, Homo erectus, had migrated out of Africa and settled in five different regions of the world and then speciated into Homo sapiens separately so that the races had very long, deep evolutionary separations that went all the way back into our predecessor species. I think there are several terms that you used a minute ago. I think people kind of know what we mean when we say species. And I think people kind of know what we mean when we say race. But then there's that term subspecies. And how does that fit in with all the rest of these terms? A uh, subspecies is a taxonomic division of a species. And there are two different ways to biologically define a subspecies. Darwin used the idea of an evolutionary lineage. This is what he's talking about when he uses the term race in On the Origin of Species. He sees it as a distinct phylogenetic branch within the species that has the potential to become a new species. And then the second way that biologists define a subspecies today is as a geographic group that has relatively sharp genetic and sometimes physical features, uh, boundaries with other groups. In the definition of a species, we have a clear-cut guide from evolutionary biology to focus on reproductive traits because species is about a degree of reproductive isolation between groups. There is no such principle to guide what it is we should use to separate races into different categories. So we have historically chosen to use highly visible, easily detectable characteristics such as skin color or nose width or hair form, but there is absolutely no evolutionary justification to use these characteristics. So to summarize, the reason why we care about the idea of subspecies when we're talking about the history of race is that many of the scientists we're touching on were trying to argue that human races were essentially subspecies. That is, that they were groups of people who were, perhaps if left alone, going to become separate species eventually. The, the scientists that were, weren't already arguing that they were separate species, in fact. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I believe you were saying is that we know, or, or biologically speaking, a species is defined along 
the degree to which it is or is not able to reproduce with similar give us a similar second organism. on that yeah right so you mentioned reproductive potential but just because some listeners might not know what you mean by that can you just explain species boundaries are defined by reproductive isolation in sexually reproducing organisms some degree of decrease in the ability to reproduce with similar organisms right so in order for human races to be separate species they would have to be incapable of reproducing with each other and we know that of course that's not true there'd have to be some sort of barrier to fully fertile and viable reproduction. So that seems crazy to me because it seems clearly that humans don't have any barriers to reproduction. So how in the world could anybody be using race as anything like a, a research tool in science? I'm glad you asked that because my mentor has written several times about the use of race as a research tool. He presented a paper in a 1966 American Association for the Advancement of Science Symposium that was organized by Margaret Mead and Theodosia Stubchansky to address how science was dealing with race in the mid-1960s. In this presentation, he was talking about using race as a device to choose samples to then measure and determine if there were differences and to try and help explain parameters of human variation. And he recounts in his memoir that during his presentation, Margaret Mead kept pounding her house post on <laughs> at the speaker's table and shouting her disagreement while he was talking. I liked the way Eric had you sort of break down person by person and concept by concept your first point earlier in the podcast. So let's do that here as well. So first, tell us a little more about Paul Baker. Paul was a student of Hooten's at Harvard, and throughout his career, he became best known and ultimately became a member of the National Academy of Science based on his work in understanding human adaptation. It's part of this program to look at human variation, and I guess Hooten got all of this started measuring individuals, measuring differences between individuals and trying to come up with group differences as a way of sorting out criminals from non-criminals and different races from one another. And Baker moved that into an evolutionary context, perhaps spurred on by another Hooten student, Sherry Washburn, who, starting in 1950, tried to move the discipline of physical anthropology in the direction of evolutionary uh, explanation. So Paul looked at uh, different groups and tried to measure thermoregulation, heat and cold stress, and how different groups. In his dissertation, he was looking at uh, black and white GIs and how they adapted to heat stress in the desert. Uh, he later had a major interdisciplinary project at high altitude in Peru, studying how humans had adapted to the stress of living with very reduced oxygen availability. And then his final research project was looking at Pacific Island peoples and their response to rapid cultural change and what could we see in terms of biological outcome variables as a result of culture stress. Uh, he also played a major role in getting human adaptation a legitimate role in both national and international scientific bodies in anthropology and outside of anthropology. You mentioned Margaret Mead, one of my personal heroes. <laughs> Who was she? Why was she so angry? What was up with the house post? Margaret Mead was a student of Boaz's. Franz Boaz, by the way, is who we owe our understanding of race as a cultural construction to. And he was a very important player in the early part of the 20th century in American anthropology, in building multidisciplinary departments of anthropology, in building the infrastructure, and his students held the offices of the American Anthropological Association. 
and Boaz brought his students to think of race as being a cultural construction, and Margaret Mead took this and went out to the field, and her most famous work, of course, is Coming of Age in Samoa, where her whole argument is about the fact that adolescents can be different in different groups without any genetic basis of the difference, but rather because of different cultural practices. And so uh, she was an extreme environmentalist, nurturist on that end of the spectrum. Hold on. By which you mean she believed that all human difference was a result of cultural and environmental influences rather than genetic. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. She, She was on the extreme end of that spectrum. While Boaz and Hooten carried on a dispute about race throughout their careers. So did their students, and we'll talk uh, at great length, I'm sure, about Ashley Montague at some point, one of Boaz's students who was instrumental in overturning the way anthropology viewed race during the 20th century. But Margaret Mead, I'm sure, was working from that environmental perspective and uh, just furious that Paul was talking about using this as a as a research tool to explain biological differences between groups. Mead wasn't the only one who was criticizing Baker's use of race. Montague Cobb, Howard University professor of physical anthropology and the first African-American to earn a Ph.D. in anthropology, called Baker a racist for his 1958 American Journal of Physical Anthropology publication of black-white differences in heat tolerance. Paul was attempting to establish relationships between population morphology and environmental variables. His research was conducted under the auspices of the U.S. Army Climatic Laboratory. He was incredibly shocked when he was attacked in this manner by Cobb. With regard to Mead, Paul's prior contact with cultural anthropologists had been primarily with ethnographers who were data-rich in terms of gathering information about the cultures they studied. He considered Margaret Mead basically a politician, and he was very shocked when she began reacting to his presentation as she did. As a result, it stands out in his memoirs. So I can imagine her standing there, and she wasn't a very big woman, right? She was relatively small, but she's standing there and she had been a major, major figure in the field for decade after decade. And here is a guy that's telling her that basically the ideas that were current when she was herself a graduate student are suddenly back on the table again. And now she's whacking her stick. (laughs) I wish I was there. All right. So I imagine that in this huge confrontation, there must have been something that came out of it. So what happens after 1966 when they have this big conflict at the AAAS? This was one of three different sessions that was part of this major symposium that was being held. There were psychologists talking, there were biologists and geneticists talking, and there were the anthropologists and and population biologists in, in this session. But it was all over the map. There is no consensus in the different papers that are part of this uh, presentation, uh, which were published two years later in the book Science and the Concept of Race. And it's been noted by several of the reviewers that this was coming to no kind of scientific consensus about what race was, how it had value or no value, or what could be done with it. T. Loring Brace especially was scathing in his review of the papers in, in the book whereas Dobchansky's friend, Elsie Dunn, gave it a very nice and kind and favorable review. But it really is a mess. And that's not a bad record of what race was in science in the 1960s, really, because they were, really were all over the place. You have to understand the 
cultural context of this confusion about race, though. A lot of it had to do with the fact that we were really in the midst of the civil rights movement at that point in time, and that had a definite impact on how scientists and social scientists were viewing race. But it was the 1972 article by evolutionary biologist Richard Lewinton that really set the scientific side of race. In his article, The Apportionment of Human Diversity, he used data that had been collected from a variety of populations around the world to show that race accounted for only about 6% of human genetic variation. That finding has since been confirmed and refined by multiple studies on DNA from world populations to suggest that race actually accounts for something less than 5% of the genetic variation that we find in worldwide human populations. This illustrates how little race accounts for patterns of human biological variation and why we should stick to a cultural, not a biological definition of the phenomenon of race. We'll talk more about using this technology to try to understand race and biology when we talk about the Human Genome Project and how it had an impact on more recent ideas about race and biology. So, Jim, you were initially taught a biological concept of race, isn't that right? Yes, that's what Sarah taught me, yes. So what's your definition today? What's your working definition of race today? I use a cultural constructivist definition of race. My very favorite statement of that is the statement that Jonathan Marks gives that race is the intersection of difference and meaning. In that, he emphasizes that all humans differ from one another biologically. And then what we do is we look around and we choose what differences we're going to privilege and what differences we're going to ignore. And in the past, it's fallen very heavily on the side of highly visible features like skin color and facial features and hair form and things like that. And of course, where it became politically and economically significant to emphasize these differences, that concept has grown. Where it was less important, that concept has kind of withered. I should note that another of my favorite takes on race is the definition offered by the anthropologist Audrey Smedley. She emphasizes the folk nature of race by calling it a worldview, a cosmological ordering system. In her definition, she also explicitly includes the fact that racial groups are conceived as unequal by nature and therefore are capable of being ranked along a superiority to inferiority continuum. We'll consider other attempts by scientists to define race in subsequent episodes. I'm Jim Binden, an emeritus professor of biological anthropology at the University of Alabama. I'm Joe Weaver, biocultural anthropologist at the University of Alabama. And I'm Eric Peterson. I'm a historian of science at the University of Alabama. And thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Speaking of Race. Mm-hmm.